Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. Uh, we are in Boston and Washington, D.C. today with two guests who fit the bill for everything I've described in terms of food, passion, and making a difference. They are Jerome Grant, who is the inaugural chef from the National Museum of African American History and Culture on the Mall, the most sought-after museum in Washington for the last uh, couple years since it opened. And the restaurant there is Sweet Home Cafe. Jerome, we're really happy to have you. Thank you for having me. And here in Boston, Hubie Jones, who I've known for about 20 years, but whose history uh, predates that. Hubie, we've had um, a lot of accomplished guests on this podcast, and we've had quite a few who are uh, relatively famous, from uh, the singer Pink to former Majority Leader uh, Senator George Mitchell. I don't think we've had anybody as accomplished as you for as long as you, born in 1933, I think, uh, on a history making a difference here in Boston and around the country. We're really, really honored to have you with us. Glad to be here. Drum, I want to start with you. I love the kind of the diversity of things that you bring to your work. I know that you went to the Pennsylvania Culinary Institute. You've got, I think, Jamaican heritage. You're an expert in Filipino Cuisine. Talk about uh, the blend of these influences that have, that have brought you to be cooking in our nation's capital and where they came from. My influences, you know, definitely came from my family. My mother, she was a you know a Filipino woman that came over to this country, not speaking too much English, and and really just got into food service because it was the most easiest thing to kind of get into for you know it was like an entry level job, and through that you know she was able to learn English as well as you know educate herself. But you know, for me, with her going and, and doing that, I was always with her. And um, my father being in the Air Force, you know, we kind of just bounced around. So I've been able to go to the odds and ends of America. You know, I ended up here in Washington, D.C., but I lived in small towns like Plattsburgh, New York and uh, Mountain Home, Idaho. You know, these real small places where you're just like, where is this at? You know, being able to be so young and be in environments like that. Um, I've had friends of all different walks of life and, and, and different cultures, different backgrounds. And, you know, I. I it's just influenced me as a person to kind of just really understand people. And, um, you know, food kind of woke that up for me also. It's just I always felt if you want to know something about a person, you know, I, you could see that through food. You know, you see that through a meal with them. And just kind of really grew into to wanting a more understanding and just followed it. You know, I, I followed a knife and I followed people. And it, it brought me here to Washington, D.C., doing, you know, such an important job as being the chef at the African-American Museum. I'm going to come back and ask you what it means to uh, how how you kind of express your own creativity and your own sense of self by cooking there. But but I want to bring you in. You be you've been a, ch- a children advocate and a mentor to youth your entire life. You were dean of the uh, School of Social Work at BU for I think 1977 and 1993, years. 16 years. Uh, and then uh, I met you when I joined the board of City Year, a national service organization, and. Just as Jerome talked about some of the influences on him, I'd read that your dad was a Pullman porter, uh, but also a, a kind of a contemporary of A. Philip Randolph, a great civil rights leader. Uh, what were some of the early influences for you? Well, my father was a Pullman porter. He was very active in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, led by A. Philip Randolph. My father was probably one of the smartest human beings I ever knew. Uh, he really wanted to be a doctor. Uh, went to Lincoln University in Missouri uh, and was on that path, was the valedictorian, 
substituted for men who were in the summer on vacation uh, in, in, in the, as a porter for the Pullman Company in order to make money to, to go through school. Uh, and after that was over, he got involved with my mother, uh, who he married, uh, and uh, marriage and responsibilities ended becoming uh, a doctor. But he volunteered as a, he was really a legal advocate, where he would take cases of, of porters who were charged with messing with 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 uh, with uh, uh, people on the on the, uh, on the on the train stealing or whatever uh, he would write briefs he would go up and represent them before lawyers that the Pullman company had downtown lawyers in New York and he was very good at getting these folks off uh, and that's how he got to know a Philip Randolph uh, a. Philip Randolph actually gave the eulogy for my father mm. uh, at his funeral. I was going to ask you, how conscious of all this were you as, a, as, a, as your father's child, as well, a young man? As a young man, I used to hear about A. Philip Randolph. The chief says. Okay, the, chief the chief says this. Huh. The chief says that. Uh, so he was uh, a presence in that sense. Uh, my father revered him. My father thought a great deal of, of, about him. Uh, and uh, that was... An influence for me. Uh, I would say one of the big influences I had in my life was when I was at the City College of New York. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Clark, the African-American psychologist, very noted, was my introductory psychology teacher. At the time, he was involved in putting together a social science brief uh, for Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, a brief that basically d documented that to separate black kids uh, in public schools was psychologically damaging to these kids. Inherently unequal. In inherently unequal. Uh, so he came in to the class one day and told us this and said, hey, here's the brief. Read it. What do you think? Did we nail it? And here I am, a 19-year-old kid saying, wow, whoa. And then he said, well, we don't know what's going to happen with the brief because Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP lawyers uh, are a little nervous about, the, about taking it with, to the court because the U.S. Supreme Court had never accepted a social science brief. And so we don't know whether they're going to do this or not. So he came into class another day and said, we're going to the court. Uh, the, they're going to accept the brief. It's being submitted with the legal brief. He went to the court. Uh, he testified. He came back, and he told us all about it. And, of course, I knew where I was in the – I still remember where I was in the cafeteria. How old were you? I was 19. 19. I still remember where I was in the cafeteria in City College when a student held up the New York Times front page, U.S. Supreme Court outlaws segregation in public schools. And I said, Wow. And, of course, I thought this was the breakthrough we were waiting for, that we were now moving to have a society that would have ultimate fairness. And so Kenneth Clark was uh, a powerful role model. I saw a scholar who was using his intellect to make social change, 
and uh, and he was he, he, he was he was very important. He, he said to us the last day of class, "Look, uh, I have to grade you. Uh, I have to comply with what the City College of New York requires, but grading you is irrelevant." The grade that really counts is when I meet you five or ten years from today and you tell me what you have done with your college education to make a difference in the world. That is the real grade. And, of course, I met uh, Dr. Clark many times. In fact, his daughter ended up working for me at the Roxbury Multiservice Center years later. And he would say, hey, Hubie, is it time to grade you? i say, oh, no, I'm not, not, not yet. Not ready for the grade I'm not yet. ready for the grade yet. <laughs> <laughs> So he was uh, he, he was a very very powerful a very powerful influence. Well, oh, I mean, I love the fact that you are talking about having lived the history that is in the museum that Jerome cooks at. Yeah, that, that's kind of uh, it almost gives me goosebumps, Jerome, to 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 think that uh, some of that history is at your fingertips every day. Well, the most powerful, other powerful experience I had while I was a graduate student uh, in social work was that when I went to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak at the Ford Hall Forum on October 28th. Which forum was this? The Ford Hall Forum. Ford Hall. The Ford Hall Forum. It was a forum that was held every Sunday uh, at Jordan Hall, not far from where we are, uh, broadcasting. Uh, and... Dr. King at that time was in the middle of the Montgomery bus boycott. And so it wasn't clear that he was going to be able to keep this appointment that he had made. And about a week before, we got the message, he's coming. And so I got myself to Jordan Hall about two hours ahead of time to make sure I got in and to make sure I got a seat because everybody wanted to see this new leader that had emerged suddenly onto the national scene. So I got into, Lord Hall, got into the Fort Hall Forum, into Jordan Hall, got a seat in the orchestra section. Onto the stage came Dr. King and went into this oratory that absolutely blew me away. It was basically starting with taking us to school, talking about philosophy, talking about Buba, talking about Gandhi, talking about Heidegger. He set a kind of a philosophical stage for the movement. Then he took it to political rally, and then he took it to church. And by the time I left Jordan Hall, I was so elevated that I went, when I walked down Huntington Avenue to get the bus back to Cambridge where I was living it as a student, I felt that I was levitating. I felt like my feet weren't even touching the ground. It was crazy. It's never happened again. But I was. It was. It was but that, that was. The, but that was the night that I. Think, and you probably weren't the only person who left the hall oh, yeah. feeling that, right? Oh yeah. But that was the night that sealed my commitment to work for social justice and racial justice in this society, and that I was going to lead a purpose-driven life. I would say that was the moment I said, "Yeah, that's what I'm going to be about." And you said that was October of what year? October, 1956. 1956. Never forget wow. the date, October 28, 1956. Wow. Powerful. Powerful. Um, so, Jerome, as I was saying, you know, Hubie is, is, is living this history that the museum is about. Um, t tell us kind of the next step about the, the genesis of, of, of 
uh, Sweet Home Cafe and, and you opening up in the Museum of African American History and Culture? Um, you know, for us opening up, it was super historical to be a part of that museum. But, you know, we know that the cafe wasn't just going to be a place where you could just get food, you know. We wanted to position it where it was an edible exhibit, you know, where we were able to showcase, you know, African-American foodways, you know, through our lenses. And, you know, what we've done is we've created this space called Sweet Home Cafe. You know, we've welcomed you into our home. So we're welcoming to you to our dinner table where you're able to see the food that we, that, that, that we have. Um, we've kind of split it up into various different regions, um, just following the migration of African-Americans. And um, you, 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 you're able to go into this space, see a lot of wall art and have these meals and to sit at these long tables and communicate with the other people that's going through the same thing that you're going through, going through the museum, you know, seeing these, uh, these exhibits. So, you know, for us, it, it, it's, it's been something that just wasn't just like, you know, a regular restaurant opening or a regular restaurant operation, you know, we're coinciding with history as well as, you know, telling an additional story to coincide with all of our other exhibits. And I know that, uh, for, I'm going to ask you to, since you get to be at the museum so much, for folks who haven't been yet, to give us, uh, help, help us paint a little bit of a picture. Tell us what's so special about it. I've, I've talked to so many people who have come from the museum, white, black, uh, any background, and they've been so moved by what they've experienced there. W what was it like for you the first time you had a, the, the luxury of not just being in the kitchen cooking, but actually getting to see it and understand its message man uh so when i first found out that we were breaking ground at the african-american museum I, I made it my goal to be the chef there and it really didn't hit me until the day before opening which was uh september 25th 2016 i rode my bike to work um like i ride my bike to work any other time um you know i rode my bike to work to my new job and i remember walking down the loading dock and i look up at this beautiful beautiful building Nothing like what you see on the mall. It's totally different. It totally sticks out. And it hit me. <laughs> it hit me to a point where I was just like, man, like, you're actually really doing something historic. You're, 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 you're being a part of our history. You're, 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 you're being able to showcase it. And it's, it, there, there's nothing like that feeling. You know, I've, trust me, I've had many jobs in my life, but I've never walked into something that, you know, really pulled at my heart. And, um, you know, walking in that cafeteria, you know, the day before opening, seeing these murals on our walls, seeing these these awesome quotes from 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 various chefs and and, and, and various uh, food people, food historians. You know, the, the 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 seeing the picture in our backdrop of the uh, of the Woolworth dining dining boycott. You know, it's just it was amazing to to be a part of that. You know, I remember we first opened up. You know, after the commencement speech and, and things like that, just to see the droves of people that came in here. And to hear their stories also, you know, I've, I've, I've met so many, uh, so many church groups that came on bus trips from California to Texas, you know, and, and, and they, they, they literally saved up all their money just to be here on these days, just to see this museum that they've been waiting all their life for. And for me to be behind the scenes and be a part of that, like, that was just something that, that's something that I'll, I'll, I'll forever cherish and that I could never, it, it, it's a tough feeling to get back, you know. It's uh, it's it's kind of like what 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 you be said about Martin Luther King's speech, right? That's a one time that's a one time feeling. Oh yeah, I mean th those things like you know I, I I guess it goes down to the way that I view life. You know, when you sit back and you look at your life, you look at the great snapshots of your life of the amazing things that you've been a part of, and this is the ultimate snapshot. You know, this is everything that my parents worked hard for. This is everything 
various people have worked hard for. This is these are the things that you know Hubie's helped set up for a lot of us to get to this point, right? So it wasn't just a personal thing for me. It was it was a, a communal thing for all of us. And for me to be the person that, no matter how great of a cook I am or how great of a restaurant operator I am, I was the guy that was chosen to help lead this group of people, you know, culinary wise into this museum. And that was just something that, you know, I, I could never, I could never truly imagine I'd get out of my career or get out of just, you know, my cooking path. Well, Jerome, so just, Jerome I'm going to finally get there in September. <laughs> Sorry to say I haven't been there already. Many of my eight children have been there two or three times and they have just been overwhelmed with uh, the experience. I mean, other people I've heard say that you really have to do it two or three times to really get the whole deal. And oh, yes. It, it takes a couple of days to get through. Yeah. And, and, and granted, you know, you, you see a lot of the things that you help fight for, uh, to, for us to get out of and get past. You, you know, you see those things. And then you see just the resiliency of us as African-Americans, what we attribute to American society and how we've molded American society in general. There, there's no feeling like that at all. There, there's no feeling that you could chase to. Some have said to, to they actually that. just cried a lot. Going through, oh yeah, going through going yeah, through it, portions of it. So it was a, yeah. a combination of of of, of crying, of, of grieving, but yet at the same time feeling some triumph that we had come over at adversity uh, in many ways in fabulous ways. So. I hope to get down. I will be getting down in September. All right. Well, maybe maybe the three of us got a bite to eat together there. Okay. Jerome, as we're thinking about a restaurant that's in the museum, and uh, so much of the history of the museum that we've read is that you know things were not in one place. They weren't carefully curated. Everybody had to uh, go on this fairly elaborate search to find the items that are in the museum. Um, the same must have been true with some of your recipes. Some of them probably weren't written down. They were handed down. How do you go about putting together uh, a, uh, a, a kitchen and a, uh, a menu that I know for you has been very important to demonstrate and show the culture of the people that the museum's about? Oh, yes. I mean, it's a lot of troubleshooting. Um, you know, even something as simple as, you know, we, we tell the story of Thomas Downing, who was a black oysterman, um, you know, showcasing what he's done to, to uh, African-American history. You know, he was a... Uh, son of free slaves, he migrated to New York. He opened up an oyster tavern. He he pretty much um, fed the more well-to-do folks of New York as he had folks coming in his uh, his cellar via Underground Railroad. You yeah. know, at and and this is a you know a black man a black man you know many 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 years ago, and um, he was able to do that and to provide opportunity for our folks that were running through the night looking for freedom, but at the same time. He was able to be an abolitionist, and um, you know, ultimately, he was just—he he, was—he was a fixture that a lot of us wouldn't know. So it was just finding those stories and, and, and the understanding uh, that, that of, of various cooks and, and, and various black folks that have attributed to our culture as well as attributed to the food culture. Now, was he the man who was on Staten Island doing oyster? Yes, he. Uh, when he passed away, the whole uh, the whole uh, New York Chamber of Commerce, Commerce shut down for this black man. It, it, it's the most amazing thing, you know. He, he, his oyster tavern was in Grand Central Station. People would line up, you know, blocks for it. Well, you know, one one other thing that this uh, evokes for me, and we should mention it. Uh, yesterday's New York Times front page was the obituary of Leah Chase, the iconic mm. Creole chef 
from New Orleans uh, who died at the age of 96. And uh, I don't know if you knew her, Jerome, but Leah Chase was somebody that we had met. We had done a fair amount of work in New Orleans and then particularly after Hurricane Katrina, uh, we went down there. And I'll just tell you a quick story because um, it was, you know, for me, incredibly memorable. We went to visit her restaurant, Dookie Chase, which had been really terribly flooded after Katrina. And I remember standing in her kitchen with her and she pointed to a stove that was covered with about six or eight inches of mud and sludge. And she said, on that stove, I cooked for Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, Thurgood Marshall, John Kennedy, Lena Horne. She went on and on. And uh, the place was had been all but destroyed. And one of the men who was with us, Shara Strength was trying to help her reopen uh, the, the restaurant. And one of the men who was visiting with us was a man named Ken Lombard, and he was president of Starbucks Entertainment. And he left the restaurant, African-American man, was really moved. He just met Leah Chase for the first time. He got back in the van, and he made two phone calls in the next 10 minutes. He called Starbucks, and he called the NAACP. And within 10 minutes, he had raised $175,000. This is actually mentioned in the New York Times obituary or in the New Orleans Picayune obituary. I can't remember which one. He'd raised $175,000, and within six months, she'd reopened uh, the restaurant. Um, She just died this weekend, uh, this past weekend, at the age of 96, an incredible woman. Um, And it goes back to, to what Hubie was saying earlier, you know, about our leaders being uh, more available. Um, I have Leah Chase's daughter's cell phone number. You know, she helped me understand certain recipes. She Mm. helped me understand cooking. Mm. Just like, you know, you talk about the godfather of Southern cuisine, Joe Randall. That's that's an uncle to me. And, you know, I, I was able to know about these folks, you know, coming up, you know, beginning to cook. But because of this museum, I was able to meet them and know them and become personal friends. So. And, they, and they were it, accessible it, it, to you. Yes. yes. Incredible. And you'll be accessible to others. Most definitely. Always, always am. Yep. Jerome, when you, when you think about food and particularly your food and your cooking as an expression of culture and all of the lessons and the history that could be represented in a specific dish that a guest at the museum is is enjoying, um, what would what would be a great example of that? Um, our our son of gun stew. Um, what's it called? Son, our son of gun stew. Son of gun stew. there was another name for that back in the yeah. day, but you know. Okay, got it. Son of gun stew. Tell, tell us. I don't us think about I could it. afford to pay the fines that you guys might get. <laughs> uh, tell us about the stew and what what um, what what lessons you know, does it embody? You know, after uh, slavery was abolished, you know, we, we had the, the westward migration. A lot of Africans flew, uh, fled west to, for newer beginnings, newer start, start overs. Um, African-Americans were, whether we were indentured servants or slaves, we had our hand in food, no matter what. Um, but we became chuck wagon workers. So during the building of the railroads, you had all sorts of cultures. You had Native Americans, you have Latinos, you had Asian cultures. It was just like this fusion of, of, of people. Well, blacks often worked on the chuck wagons, fed them as well as the cowboys and, and, and so forth. And they made this stew called Son of Gun Stew. Um, at that time, all your prime cuts would go to market and it'd go to the more wealthier people. Um, and, you know, these folks were left with the scraps. It was everything from calf hearts to, you know, chicken livers, um, 
all sorts of just, you know, the, your, your least favorite cuts. But they were able to make this awesome stew out of it called Son of Gun Stew that not only nourished their bodies, but also tastes good. So it was just the understanding of how we could take the, the, the meager scraps that were given and create a feast for everybody, you know, be able to push through it and, and make these great things out of it. And, you know, I, I think that, that that stew itself that we make, it, it really showcases just what African-American hands could do and how, you know, we've been able to continue to change history. Well, and it's so great to understand how, uh, you know, you don't waste uh, any opportunity to, to teach and to share and to bring that culture forward. It's just so exciting to see somebody doing that with food. I have a special message for our loyal listeners today about what you can look forward to for future episodes of Add Passion and Stir. Over the past few years, we've been privileged to have hosted nearly 300 amazing guests on about 140 episodes. We realize that's a lot of podcasts to keep up with, both for you and for us. In order to be able to give each episode the attention it deserves, both in producing and promoting it, we'll switch away from the weekly release that you've come to expect every Wednesday morning, and instead you can look forward to a new podcast every other week. But first, as we restructure, we'll be on hiatus until just after Labor Day, returning in September with an all-new lineup of episodes. During that time, we'll be providing you with a fresh listen to some of our favorite moments from Ad Passion and Stir, pairing them with segments from other episodes that share a thematic unity. We hope you enjoy and stay tuned to this new collection of the combined wisdom of a number of our guests on topics like leadership lessons, overcoming adversity, and fixing our broken food system. We're always open to your ideas, so don't hesitate to be in touch, to tweet at us, or to email me at shareourstrength at bshore at strength.org. And as always, thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. I think I just read that the Smithsonian just named their first president who's African-American. Isn't that right? Lonnie Bunch. Lonnie Bunch. Lonnie, Lonnie Bunch. Yes, yes, sir. And I, I've had the privilege to work with Lonnie and, and still work with Lonnie. Um, it's just he's an amazing man. Uh, you know him, Yubi? Uh, yeah, I met Lonnie Bunch in uh, 2002 when I was taking uh, a group of Boston leaders to Chicago. He was in Chicago then running the Chicago History Museum. And so I did an advance trip to see if I can get good people to talk to a Boston delegation of 60 people who were coming to learn best practices uh, that would be relevant to, to Boston opportunities and challenges. And I went to see Lonnie Bunch. And I said, uh, you know, we're bringing this delegation. Would you be willing to talk to us? He said, yeah, I'd be willing to talk to you but I'd also be willing to host a luncheon for the Boston delegation uh, at the Chicago History Museum. And he was just wonderful. Uh, the next year, he was heading to, sh to Washington, and the word was he was going to put this museum together, almost from scratch. An extraordinary job. An extraordinary job. And to see him now rewarded by being responsible now for the 19 museums right. under the Smithsonian yep. is, a, is, is un unbelievable. Jerome, it sounds like the Lonnie Bunch you know. Yes, super brilliant man. He's just, just a wonderful soul. And, uh, you know, he's, he's regarded like one of the best historians in the world. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he, he, he's, he's well-educated. He knows his stuff and he knows how to get the job done. And he's just, you know, a, a brilliant, considerate person. 
Fantastic. Yubi, um, I want to ask you, 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 1956, you walk out of Martin Luther King's lecture. You're dedicating your life to social change, as you said. Uh, and so much of that has taken the form of uh, change on behalf of the needs of children. Uh, how did you get in that direction? Talk about some of the things that you've done there. Well, first of all, as a social worker, I, I worked with groups of children who were emotionally disturbed and physically handicapped for the Boston Children's Service Association. That was my first professional job, working with young people in groups who were, who were challenged. So I had a commitment to young people in terms of developing services. It was in 1968, when I was working at the Roxbury Multi-Service Center, that my social service staff came to me because they were having parents coming to them because their children were being kicked out of the Boston public schools with basically the school saying that the child is too disturbed or too retarded or too disabled to function in a regular classroom situation. So don't bring him or her back to school. Absolutely illegal. So as a result of that, these social workers said to me, look, uh, we've been having mental health evaluations of these kids and we've found out that 85% of them are not disturbed, are not recorded, retarded, could function in a regular classroom situation if good teaching was happening and good management of kids was happening in schools. So on with that data, we went back to the schools and said, no, this child should be back in school, can function in a regular classroom situation. These are the things that you can do. And uh, as and then for other kids where the schools were just too, too, too dangerous, if not really, uh, were not really helpful to them, we'd raise private money to send them to private schools. We, we, we understood we had a systemic problems. So these social workers landed back in my office saying, Hubie, this is a systemic problem. Do something about it. You like to jack people up. Well, go ahead and jack the Boston public school system up and, and resolve this problem. That led to me forming a task force on children out of school that included some lawyers of, uh, of, of note, parents, uh, community people, social work folks and all. And we basically said we are going to do a study of the problem. And uh, we did. Out came a report a year later entitled The Way We Go to School, The Exclusion of Children in Boston. And we found out that there were at least 10,000 students, children, who were not in school. In Boston, 10,000 10, kids. 10,000. And 7,600 of them were Latino kids because there were no bilingual programs or bicultural programs in the Boston Public Schools. And so they, they weren't going. And the attendance officers were not doing anything about getting them to go to school. In fact, when we, when we had a kind of a, a, a public hearing with some of these folks, uh, the, the attendance officer, the guy who headed the attendance department, we said to him, why are you not getting these kids back into school? Why aren't you doing your job? And he said, well, leave me alone. Get off my back. If you give Latino kids two minutes, they'll copulate. They're immoral. 
So there we heard and saw this rank racism. Yes. And so the people who were on the task force, some of these psychiatrists and others were like, whoa, what? And so th we, as a result of that, when we finished the report, because we were determined to get it implemented, uh, we had a nucleus of people who stayed on to form ultimately the Mass Advocates for Children, which is about to celebrate its 50th year. 50 years, wow, okay. that's gotta feel good. So that's, that's how I really got into advocacy in a, in a, in a major way for, for, for kids. And from there we went into the whole school breakfast, getting school breakfast for kids, the whole problems with uh, delinquency, what was going on for kids who were in the Department of Youth Services and not being treated treated correctly. So we so we got into a whole set of other issues and as we advocated for kids. So we changed the name for the Task Force until Children Out of School to Mass Advocates for Children. Uh, and that was uh, a part of one part of my journey uh, in terms of leadership in Boston. Now that led, by the way, that led to the, the passage of Chapter 766, the Special Education Law in, in Massachusetts, the first in the nation to guarantee children in public schools in Massachusetts uh, education, mainstream education, and if they couldn't, ch the child could not function in a main, main school education, they could be put into private into, into, into private settings. Massachusetts was the first state in the country first to do that. First state in the country to do it. And Marion Wright Edelman, who was at that time chairman of, uh, the, the, who was working at the Center for Law and Education at Harvard, was inspired by what we were doing. And that led her to start the Children's Defense Fund. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, served on her, I served on her board for a couple of years. So uh, two years later, at the national level, in, in, in 70, 1974, the national law was passed, guaranteeing all children throughout the country uh, access, guaranteed access to special education services. Well, I, I want to ask both of you. So, race has come up a few times here, and you're, you're, both of your careers, in some ways, in very powerful ways, intersect with race. And as I think about how we deal with race in this country. Uh, you know, you said something, you'd be right at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about the passage of Brown versus Board of Education, and we thought, you said something to the effect of like, we thought that was gonna create the change that, that we needed. And it was a piece of it, certainly, but I, I've also read somewhere where you said, um, if you don't stay vigilant, no matter what, the victories you win will be rolled back, that you've gotta continue to, to fight these battles. The African, uh, the, the Museum of Amer African American History and Culture is, a, is a, a piece of how we fight that battle because it teaches very important lessons of our history. Your career has been a piece of it. But for both UUB and Jerome, we still have a lot of work left to do. And um, this feels politically like a time where it's you know particularly important to figure out ways that we unite people, not divide people, just given how divisive and polar polarized our, our politics have become. But, um, you know, as you think about what kind of advice you would give to the, the next Hubie, who's, you know, 19 years old or 23 years old and has been inspired and wants to create racial healing in this country. Jerome, as you think about the incredible resources of the museum and your special platform there and the voice that you have, 
Uh, how should we think about how to, how do we do better as a society on race? What kind of specific things do we need to do? Well, you talk about young people. I, I've seen a, a number of young people who are doing advocacy work in, at the high school level. They've come to see me. They're getting ready to go to college. And, of course, I say to them, look, uh, you, you've done fantastic work. I think you're going to be a terrific leader. But when you get to college, you're going to be drawn on by people to get involved in all kinds of battles. And you like this stuff anyway. But you, college is four years. It goes like, like in a flash. You're in college to get a broad liberal arts education, if possible, to know history, economics, political science, philosophy, natural science. You have to be broadly educated if you're going to have the knowledge and stuff you need to be a real leader. And I said, when, you, when I read about Martin Luther King Jr., the thing that you, you, you understand was he was broadly educated. Philosophy, history, economics, broadly educated. That's what he was drawing on as he began to be a fierce advocate for change. So that's one of the things I, re I, I recommend to young people. Okay, just be as broadly educated as you can be because you have to have a lot of knowledge to try to figure out the work you, you're going to do that will, make, that will make a difference. At the end of the day, you've got to commit yourself to, to, to doing this for a lifetime. It's a marathon. You're not in one day and out the next, one week and out the next, one month and out the next. If you're going to change some of the major systems in this country, whether they're public schools, whether they're prisons, you name it, it is a lifetime commitment. And uh, it is only that understanding that makes it possible for you to stay the course and over time do what do what's do what's needed to, to you know to make a difference. Right back in 2003, I started a children's chorus. I'm not a musician, so I got out of my comfort zone. You heard Jerome talk about him getting out of his comfort zone, okay, and going from one kind of cooking to to the next. Well, I got out, I got out of my comfort zone, but I learned that it was through the arts and through music particularly, that you had the best chance of bringing young people together, a diverse group of young people together, and to get social integration, not desegregation, social integration across the divides of race, ethnicity, social class, sexual orientation, and all of the rest. And this is the Boston Children's Chorus or the Boston Bo Children's Choir? The Boston Children's Chorus. Chorus. Okay, so I saw the Chicago Children's Choir in 2001 at a city convention, national convention, they came on the stage, a group of high school kids singing at a level of excellence that blew me away. And I said to myself, this is the model that we need probably in Boston to, to try to get serious social integration of kids. I had tried all the other means. I had tried camping. I had tried uh, after school programming. and. And a lot of this stuff with limited success. Uh, but uh, the Boston Children's Chorus, where we started with 300 kids, uh, 
in 2003. We now have over 500 kids in 13 choirs. The top choir uh, it sings at a, an extraordinary level of excellence now, and they're off to they're off to Australia. You have a mission to get certain things to happen, and you have to go. You you have to do it. Use any means possible to do it. Okay, so in my case, it was finally in terms of getting social integration. Uh, it was through music yep. and to into the choir. Uh, I'm going to tell you a piece of our shared history that you might not even be aware of. Um, and I, I I love that you told this story about the choir uh, or the Boston Children's Chorus. Uh, so about 15 some years ago, I wrote a book called The Cathedral Within. Uh, and the whole point of the book was the point that you were making about it not being a, a sprint, that it's a marathon. And the reason I wrote about cathedral builders is because they spend their entire lives working on something that they won't see finished. That was the nature of cathedral building back in the 14, 15, and 1600s. It took hundreds of years to build a cathedral. So the one thing that everybody who worked on it knew, the only thing they knew for certain is that they wouldn't see their work finished. But that didn't detract from their dedication or craftsmanship. They were part of something larger than themselves. They were part of creating something beautiful. Uh, and in the course of that book, I wrote about uh, some people that I thought were cathedral builders. One was Alan Casey, who you and I know as one of the co-founders of City Year, the National Service Organization. Uh, the other was a woman named Nancy Karstadt, who was the director of the Chicago Children's Choir. And uh, since Alan was in the book, he read the whole book cover to cover, and when he read about Nancy Karstadt at the Chicago Children's Choir, he said, we're gonna have them come and perform at uh, our City Year's National Convening. And fortunately, you were in the audience and you heard them and then the light bulb went off and you had the idea, which nobody else had, that we ought to have a Boston Children's Chorus. Um, and so I'm gonna take a footnote of history there, uh, uh, history's worth of credit for the, for the Boston uh, Children's Chorus, but that was an amazing thing that you made happen, Yubi, and so thank for, on behalf of all of Boston, thank you. Uh, Jerome, as we as we uh, talk about uh, race in this country, are you, are you optimistic, pessimistic? Are we heading in the right direction, wrong direction? How do you think about it from the vantage point of somebody who sees people making this pilgrimage to the museum every day uh, on behalf of uh, an aspiration to have more racial healing? Um, you know, I, I see it more as we have a lot more work to go with the divide that's going on now. I think this is time where we all need to take a little bit more time to educate ourselves, but educate ourselves about each other, the the what's right and the what's wrong in, in, in the world and kind of focus on that. You know, my firm belief is if you do right day in and day out, you know, you do the right thing when nobody's looking. It, it, it means a lot more than just going out there to try to be right. Um, but I think it's mostly we just educating ourselves about each other, learning more about each other and not being afraid of each other. And. For each of you, you know, I've worked in the nonprofit sector for 30 years now, and so one of the questions I'm always asking myself is the work we're doing as nonprofits, whether it's the museum, whether it's the Boston Children's Chorus, whether it's City Year, whether it's Share Our Strengths, No Kid Hungry campaign, is it enough or do we also have to get more political? And it's a question I go back and forth on all the time. Hubie, you've been at the center of a lot of politics in, in Boston and Massachusetts. Uh, where does that fit into our, our aspiration to create lasting change? Well, look, the cities uh, in, in this country, Boston's an example of it, uh, the majority of the residents are people of color. And if they unite, 
in coalition, mobilize politically, they'll have enough power to take City Hall uh, and, and do the right thing, as well as to do other things that have a lot of power associated with it to get, to, to get change. But we're just not mobilizing ourselves politically when we have the opportunity to really do so. What's getting in the way of that? What's getting in the way, in the way of that is that we, we have too many, well, we, we see it also in the nonprofit service sector. We, we have too much silo activity too little coordination and collaboration, uh, and as a result of that, you can't you can't get collective impact. In 2008, I woke up one one night at two o'clock in the morning, concerned about the fact that, that there were a number of nonprofit service institutions in Boston that were in trouble, and so I called a meeting of all of the nonprofit service leaders and the political representatives who represent their constituents and, and clients to talk about what is going on here. So I called this meeting at City Year. Forty people showed up. Why are we here? I said, we're here because I understand that some of these organizations, some of you, are in trouble or maybe going out. We're in the middle of a recession, so there's going to be some damage here. So we're going to have to figure out what's going on. So there's a real serious, honest conversation. And at the end of that, they said to me, uh, okay, well, what do you think we should do? I said, well, all I can tell you is that if you don't collaborate like you've never collaborated before, some of you are going to go down. But if you do, some of you will not have to go down. And... uh, and maybe we can go to a better place. Because what we were seeing is, okay, when I ran the Roxbury Multi-Service Center from 1965 to 1971, uh, we we had better outcomes for kids and families than we were seeing in 2008 Hmm. uh, when the Boston Health Commission indicated that the negative indicators were worse now, and we had 130 nonprofit service institutions in Roxbury, North Dorchester, and Mattapan. And we, and in, 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 the, in, what I, in, in the 60s, we had none of these agencies. So we were resource rich and impact poor, okay? So anyway, they said, well, what, do you, what should we do? I said, well, one of the things you could do is to put together a working group on nonprofit uh, recovery and uh, maybe put together a team of people that would go into these agencies and do a, an audit as quickly as possible and as, as, as well as possible, and then uh, see what we can do to, keep, to save agencies from going under. He said, well, okay, that's, that sounds like a good idea. Would you chair it? I said, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, chair this, I'll chair this working group on the one condition, that anybody I call on will serve, and I mean serve. And so they said, okay, fine. So we came together, and we figured out that the major problem we had in, 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 the, in the community was that we had a, a fractured community, no collaboration, no coordination, no integration, not enough power to get, get, to get results for, for, for kids and families, 
and that we, what we needed to do was to build an intermediary organization, not a new service institution, but an intermediary organization that would bring these organizations together and work together to be able to make things happen. That's how we formed Higher Ground, Inc. Okay. And you're saying there's this latent political power that with collaboration can really be exercised. That's right. And one of the things we're doing is we, we have a, a, a parent coalition and, and, the, and some of the parents are, have their kids in charter schools, some of them have their kids in, pub, in the pro, district public schools. They're all the same kids from the same neighborhoods. And so they, we, we had them all t together working on trying to improve education for, for, for the kids, no matter, no matter where they are. And so, so we're mobilizing parents to put enough pressure on the school system, on, on politicians, on the, on, the, on the governor, who's now talking about doing better funding, better education funding uh, for, for public schools. So that's, that's, been a, that's a piece of what, it, what needs to be done. And so here I am again at, eight, at age 85 <laughs> trying to, uh, to, to, to work with getting communities and their, and their, uh, their institutions, so particularly their, their nonprofit service institutions, to do what they ought to be doing. Boston has the, the broadest, deepest nonprofit service sector of any city of its size in the country, none even close. And when you put the, the major universities into the nonprofit mix, which they are, nonprofit institutions, when you put the, these extraordinary institutions as a part of it, uh, there's nothing like it. Now, unfortunately, the universities and colleges don't give a wit, really, about doing anything to upgrade public education. They'll, they'll talk about it, but they won't do anything really about it. They're more interested in how many foreign students they can get to come to Harvard and BU yep. and, 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 and Northeastern, and they're very successfully doing that. But what's going on in, 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 the, in the, the local community in terms of not, it's not happening. Hmm. Jerome, as we're talking politics, any special challenges or opportunities? I mean, do you? Do you I mean, the, I guess the the museum, you know, is not political, and the Smithsonian is not political, but it certainly gives people a political impulse when they come through there. I would think. Right. Um, you know, for me, I, I I can only rely on politics, but so much. I I just think it's you know, if we focus on us being people. You know, we'll be able to to persevere and push through things. Uh, well, tell us as we wrap up. What but, but I think it's important to, 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 to know that this museum exists because black leadership advocated fiercely over many years for this to happen. It was a marathon. Okay. Right. Yeah, definitely. All right. So uh, this is the outcome of what you do when, when you organize and you continue to put pressure on and you use every available means to do it. You use the media, you use the politicians, you use communities, and collectively that eventually adds up. How many years did it take to, from the time this was an idea to get this museum built, do you know? I think it took about 20 years. Wow. Look, it took uh, 20 years to get a MLK holiday, become a national holiday. Right, right. Okay, and it was Coretta Scott King who fiercely advocated for this over those 20 years. And that is one of her great legacy. Can you imagine? We don't even have a president who has their, 
by in in their own right who has a birthday national birthday holiday that's right and you have <laughs> and you have an african american leader okay having a national holiday Jerome, as we wrap up tell us uh, when when ub comes down in september and assuming i get over there uh, what's the one thing on your menu that you would say don't miss definitely don't miss our uh, cornbread stuffed trout with uh, caramelized Ooh. onions and mustard green. cornbread stuffed trout and it's a regular on the menu yes sir okay we're going to look for it i want to thank you both so much for being part of this conversation, uh, both playing such important roles each in your own way. And uh, the Museum of African American History has become a uh, must stop. And I haven't been to Sweet Home Cafe yet either, Jerome, but I can't wait to get in. I've heard so many great things about it and about you. And just, you know, your own career has really been inspiring. And knowing you're there and uh, adding to the aura of the museum is, uh, is really exciting for all of us. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing you down there. Can't wait. Hubie Jones, I hope the next 85 years uh, you are as productive as the last 85. It's been incredible what you've accomplished. And, uh, you know, we haven't even talked about the, it's got to be, the number's got to be in the thousands of young people that you've mentored uh, and inspired. I know from my short time on the board of City Year, uh, the impact that you had on so many young people who are engaged in community service there. But uh, thanks for for being a marathoner, thanks for never giving up. Thanks for you know bringing this fight to to our community every day. Well, I hope Jerome does what I do. I have, I have a personal policy that any person who wants to see me about any idea they have will be able to see me. Leaders have to be available. Leaders have to be accessible. You talk about my next eighty-five years. I'll be lucky if I have the next five years. The the real deal is. What are we doing for these young leaders to take over, stand on our shoulders, and, and make a difference? And I think, what, I think what's implied in what you're saying, Yubi, uh, which I think is such an important lesson, is that uh, our leaders also need the humility to believe that uh, even though what they're doing is important, it's not so important that they don't have time to talk to new people and listen to new ideas and to learn new things that they may not have thought of yet. It's more important probably than anything else. It's more It's more important. It's more important than anything else. Great life's lesson. Hubie Jones, thank you so much for being with us on Add Passion and Stir with Jerome Grant and I'm Billy Shore. I want to thank our team, uh, Paul Woodall, our producer, Woody, who's in our DC office. I want to thank Bristol Studios, which has had us here in Boston on Huntington Avenue. Uh, the team at Share Our Strength, my sister Debbie Shore and Kelly Griffin, who make this podcast possible. I hope you'll uh, listen, share this with your friends. Uh, go on to iTunes or to Add Passion and Stir website. You can rate us and rank us and uh, leave comments and um, continue to listen to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks so much for being with us. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.